This June, thousands of Southern Baptists will gather in Anaheim for the SBC annual meeting, and Southwestern Seminary wants to see you there. Stop by the booth in the exhibit hall to pick up some new Swibbits gear and talk to the faculty about the latest news from Seminary Hill. Tickets are on sale now for the Southwestern Seminary's SBC Alumni and Friends Luncheon, which will take place on June 15th at noon. Make plans to reconnect with fellow Southwesterners, catch up with Swibbits faculty, and hear from President Dr. Adam W. Greenway. You can purchase your tickets at swibbits.edu forward slash SBC22. And we hope to see you there, but now on to the show. Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, and we have a special gift for you today, and that is Dr. Kyle, non-alcoholic beerman, is not on the show. In his place, we have Brent Leatherwood of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and uh, we're going to just visit together and talk a little bit about some recent news. Uh, when this goes live, it will have been last week, and, uh, and kind of share about the Christian response to that news. But before we get to that, Brent, first of all, who are you, what are you doing, and why on earth are we talking to you about this? So Brent, take it away. Well, based on that uh, intro, it, it sounds like I can claim to be uh, a guest co-host. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I'm going this is going up on the, the Twitter bio. Um, so, hey, uh, Matt, thanks for having me on. Uh, obviously, this is pretty, pretty consequential week. And the, the reason that I would say it's so consequential and the reason I think that you invited me on is because our work at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, uh, our portfolio has the Supreme Court and public policy in it. And so I think that's why you have it on here. And I get in this season to serve as acting president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And so uh, I think those are some of the reasons that, that you have. And I'm a swell guy. So I, I think that's. Well, I would agree with you on that last part, except when I showed up to this and I see on your chair behind you, an Atlanta Braves jacket. And I immediately go on the offense and think you did that just because of me. <laughs> and if you did, I'm proud of you. I'm also mad at you. But you let, let's share that story a little bit. It's I, I know people aren't going to be able to actually see this, uh, but but share the story kind of behind that Atlanta Braves jacket that you are kind of sitting on. Yes, well, uh, I I am a uh, I am a huge Braves fan, uh, and and oftentimes I, I have to um, I have to seek forgiveness because there, there are times where maybe I make uh, I fashion an idol out of out of the Braves and, and my fandom of it. Um, but growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that, that they were basically the hometown team. Chattanooga is kind of like a northern suburb of Atlanta, and. Um, and so, yeah, so the jacket is, it's a collector's item. Uh, it's the same jacket that the, the Braves wore on the field in their first World Series run back way back in 1991. And my mom found it, and I have had it all these years. And uh, when they finally won their most recent world championship over a, a team that will go unmentioned right now, um, uh, I, I brought it back out of the closet to see if I could still fit into it. And boy, it. It feels just as good as the first day I put it on. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, congrats on the World Series win uh, last year, even though it was at that team, not to be mentioned, uh, who we do regularly mention on this pod for obvious exactly. reasons. Uh, but uh, you recently wrote an article on the ERLC page. Uh, it's ERLC.com, and we're going to put it in the show notes, this specific article, of course. Uh, but it's titled uh, specifically, Understanding the Draft Opinion Leak of the Supreme Court. Like some of my books, it's a rather long article title. and uh, But you also call it the most consequential leak of our lifetime. And, uh, and that's actually something you would say because there was a recent leak, at least several years back recent, uh, from Edward Snowden that you write about, and that being the most consequential leak of many of our lifetimes, that was until May the 2nd, 2022. So for those that are tuning in that somehow have not seen anything on the news or been on Twitter or Facebook where this has been regularly discussed and trending, uh, what was this leak? And then we'll dig into what we need to understand about it. Yeah, so the Edward Snowden leak, just start there for many folks that may have kind of forgotten it, uh, just because we seem to have short-term memories in our current culture. But Edward Snowden is a former National Security Agency uh, contractor, uh, fled the country, and then released a huge trove of highly classified data that ended up uh, having a major effect on our nation's uh, security and surveillance uh, apparatus, national security community, et cetera, a bunch of reforms, court cases. Uh, many ways, we're still dealing with some of the effects of that. And uh, in in my 20 years or so of uh, working in the public policy world, that was easily uh, the most consequential leak. And then Monday at 7.30 happened, uh, where um, uh, a few colleagues, folks that we know, texted me, and then I just got a barrage of phone calls and texts from other individuals who saw this story appear in Politico, uh, where a reporter at that news outlet had obtained a draft majority opinion, uh, the first draft majority opinion in the upcoming Mississippi abortion decision, Mississippi case abortion decision. It's called Dobbs, Dobbs v. Uh, Jackson Hole Women's Health. And essentially, this case has been one that many folks in the pro-life movement have been watching work its way up through the system. Uh, oral arguments happened last December 1st, and um, a lot of folks eagerly anticipating, and folks on the pro-choice side, because they, they know this represents a significant threat to the current abortion legal framework in our country. And um, and this uh, this reporter got the the first draft of the opinion, and it's it's going directly at the Roe versus Wade and uh, its sister case that came several years later. Later, excuse me, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, it's going directly at that framework, and and it will have a massive effect on the uh, the abortion industry. And I think it is uh, important to remember that it is a draft. Uh, like all of us that have been in college and in seminary and whatnot, you know, drafts may may change. And I, I don't necessarily see much of a reason for us to perhaps discuss uh, is this trying to put pressure or, or whatever, all the things that we don't know. Uh, but for the purposes of this this episode and so we can understand kind of what is is happening or potentially going to happen. Uh, let's say that it is. True, of course, it was uh, the veracity was confirmed. But let's say that is what is going to to happen. When that happens, 
what is sort of the next step? Like, does the entire world unravel or go up in flames or whatever it might be? What happens ultimately in our country? And, and then we'll look at kind of the Christian response to that. Does this, let's say this decision holds, what's next? Yeah, so um, because you're absolutely right uh, that it can change. I mean, it's a draft. So by definition, it, 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 it will likely change. As a matter of fact, because it's the first draft, uh, the Supreme Court tends to have several versions of these discussion drafts, and, and so more than likely there there have been other drafts uh, already composed that have likely changed uh, various parts of, of this opinion. Um, so, uh, but that said, just the fact that it was leaked is already having effects. Um, First and foremost, it's probably having an effect on the level of trust within the Supreme Court chambers. Uh, the Supreme Court is not used to doing its work in the public sphere. Uh, it, it's not like Congress. It's not like your you know state legislature, city hall. Um, most of its deliberations, as a matter of fact, nearly all of its deliberations happen behind closed doors until an opinion is announced publicly. And that's really the only interface that the court is accustomed to having with the public. Um, so there's there's probably an erosion of trust happening behind the doors right now as they try and determine who leaked it. Uh, but already you're seeing attempts by um, uh, Democrats in Washington to, to try and codify the Roe v. Wade legal framework. Now, more than likely, that's not going to be successful because of the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, which uh, we need to pray for uh, our senators who are holding fast to protect the filibuster so that, so that very bad law like this uh, uh, cannot be passed. Um, but it's probably even down the line uh, in in the confirmation hearings. There, the nature of those is very likely to be changed because of this leak. So there's going to be far-reaching effects. Now, if uh, if this holds true, so because it was written as a majority opinion, we can assume at, at some point five justices have agreed that Roe versus Wade needs to be overturned and thrown out. Um, if, if that just that simple act happens, um, the architecture of, of this particular opinion suggests that the, the, the issue of abortion itself and whether to regulate it or not will no longer be in the federal sphere. Uh, but instead, it will be down at the state policy level. Uh, so, you know, if you're in Texas, uh, the issue of abortion is going to be much more prominent uh, in the halls of your capital in, in Austin. Uh, if you're here in Tennessee, just down the road from me is the state capital where I used to work. And uh, it, it's going to take on more prominence there. Now, I just mentioned two states, though, that have actually already been very active on this issue, uh, even within the uh, Roe-Casey framework. There's a whole host of other states out there that haven't taken the, the positions that our respective state leaders have. And so abortion is much more permissive. As a matter of fact, some states are suggesting they're going to go beyond uh, the Roe-Casey framework, uh, essentially allowing abortion up until the very moment of birth, which is, look, abortion is ghastly at whatever stage uh, because it, it snuffs out a, a human life. Um, but to suggest that they're going that far is, is oh, it's horrific. Uh, so needless to say, uh, over the last 50 years in the pro-life movement, uh, much, uh, if not all of our attention and energy and resources have gone to the federal level uh, to try and combat the abortion industry. 
Um, at this point, it's a huge victory. If it gets taken out of Washington and gets put back at the state level, uh, that is a huge victory. And there's a lot of joy that we should have in that. But it also will signify the next step in the pro-life movement. We really have to roll up our sleeves. And in, in a sense, we're going to have to go door to door, uh, pleading for and advocating for the lives and the dignity uh, of our of our preborn neighbors. I think that speaks to kind of another part of your article, uh, having a culture of life. Uh, you know, we we throw the terms around pro-life, uh, pro-choice. Maybe the pro-choice people are going to call us just pro-birth, and then some of us will sometimes call them just pro-death or something like that. But you y'all use uh, the ERLC often uses uh, that term, a culture. Of life, you use it in this article. You use it in other articles on your site, and so forth. What does that mean? Yeah. So, at its most basic level, it means establishing uh, uh, policies and protections that end uh, the taking of a preborn life. That that's at its most basic and most essential level. Um, but you you cannot work in this space very long. Uh, before you understand uh, that we've got to be doing more. Uh, and so what, is, what do I mean by that? We've got to be serving vulnerable mothers, uh, mothers who um, are in a situation that they didn't plan for, uh, or uh, anxious fathers uh, who didn't intend for this to happen necessarily, uh, uh, families in crisis, um, you know, uh, there's a, a study out there and it shows that um, a, a majority of women who have an abortion um, demographically tend to actually already have had a child. Um, and, and so that, that's why I'm saying like there, there are families involved here. It's, it's not just one individual or two individuals. Sometimes it's multiple individuals. And so we need to be advancing policies that recognize uh, that multifaceted aspect of, of abortion. And we need to wrap around uh, support for those individuals and advance policies uh, that will uh, uh, stabilize that situation. Now, uh, the church does an incredibly good job of modeling this. As a matter of fact, that's, that's actually one of the themes that I play up is church, we've done an incredible job in this area, uh, supporting uh, pro-life pregnancy clinics, making sure that, you know, if you've ever walked into any of those, uh, they've got shelves stocked full of diapers and, and clothing and material resources that any mother would say, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. If you could just flip their mindset, because we have to realize for 50 years, Planned Parenthood and other um, uh, abortion industry companies uh, who are profiting uh, off of, uh, of abortion they have been whispering in the ears of these vulnerable mothers. And that child that's growing inside of you, uh, it, it's actually going to harm your livelihood, your welfare. And so they have figured out a way to pit the life of the child against the life of the mother. And so if we come in loving our neighbor, we can, we can, we can uh, upset that dynamic and, and get a mother who might be considering abortion to say, no, you know what, I, I can do this. And so uh, small groups that, that adopt families, uh, churches that are out there advocating for pro-life policies and, and policies that support families. Uh, we've been modeling this very well. 
And what I'm hopeful for in the wake of this decision, again, if it, if it does actually come out this way, what I'm hopeful for is that the church will redouble its efforts uh, to do these things. And it will model for uh, the, the public sphere, the public sector, government leaders, state leaders, that this is what we need to see more of from them. Uh, so that ultimately, uh, going back to our little uh, SBC history in 2003, uh, we passed a resolution that marked um, uh, 30 years since the passage of Roe versus Wade. And in that resolution, it said, resolve that we pray and work for the repeal of the Roe v. Wade decision and for the day when the act of abortion will not be only illegal, but also unthinkable. And that's the thing. We, we want to make it so that it is unthinkable. It is unnecessary. Uh, so, yeah, we want it backed up by law. You can't take the life of a preborn child. But we also just want to take away those dynamics because in so many of these instances, uh, a mother or a vulnerable family, they're thinking through uh, you know, economic decisions or cultural decisions or maybe uniquely personal ones. We, we want to lessen those burdens. And I think the church does an incredible job of doing that in a Galatians 6 way, bearing the burdens of others. So, As we record this, it is also the uh, National Foster Care uh, Month. That is something that's near and dear to our family's heart and uh, in many Christians' heart. And uh, that was uh, our, our road that we walked. And I, I guess it really wasn't much of a road. It was more of like a roller coaster of a lot of ups, many downs, some twists and turns, but ultimately paved the way for us to have uh, four beautiful daughters. And, and we're grateful for that. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm going to put in the, the show notes as well, some, some links to some ways that you can serve, uh, not necessarily even as a, a foster parent, but maybe in respite and other ways that you can care uh, in certainly some resources for foster parenting and adoptive parenting. Uh, but there's other areas too. Yeah. As you mentioned, some of the crisis pregnancy centers, uh, y'all's uh, Psalm 139 project. And, uh, and since I said that, and there might be somebody out there listening uh, that hears Psalm 139 project, they know the verse, they don't know what the project is. Could you tell them just briefly kind of what that is and, uh, and why we kind of celebrate that? Yeah, let me let me start back on the foster care thing. Uh, I, I had the high privilege. One of my mentors very early on in, in my uh, walk with Jesus was a former president of the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home. And y'all, if, if you're a pastor or ministry leader who's listening to this, uh, there's a decent chance that there's a Baptist Children's Home in your state. And they need your support. And they would love it if, if churches from around the state would call them up, say, hey, what can we do to help? This is the moment to be preparing for and be ready to do that. Um, so uh, get engaged with those folks right there. And look, even if you don't have a Tennessee or a, a state Baptist children's home, there are other, other foster programs. Uh, states always run one where you can help and, and engage there. So uh, definitely channel your energies in that direction as well. Psalm 139 Project, uh, this has been an initiative of the RLC for the last uh, 20 years or so. It started under Dr. Richard Land so thankful that he had, he had the foresight and the vision uh, to, to start this initiative. But essentially what it is, is, um, well, everybody knows ERLC, uh, we are funded by the cooperative program. So uh, we consider ourselves some of the foremost advocates uh, for the cooperative program. This particular initiative, though, is not 
uh, funded by any cooperative program dollars. This is us going above and beyond, talking to partners, talking to supporters, um, helping churches who are saying, hey, what, what, what extra can we do to help uh, beyond just giving to the CP? So please continue giving to the CP. But if there's something else you would want to do that helps really make a difference, giving to the Psalm 139 project is an incredible way to do it. Uh, what we do is we take uh, funds that come in, we put them into an account, and the only two things it can be spent for are purchasing an ultrasound machine to go into a partnering pregnancy clinic uh, or the training that goes to make sure that there is someone or some people on staff at that pregnancy clinic that knows how to use it. Um, these, these machines are incredible technology, and I'm sure many uh, folks in your audience are very familiar with the statistics. But so upwards of eight out of every 10 women who come into a clinic and they see their preborn child on those screens, they end up choosing life. And so it just makes a huge difference because they, they see the physical humanity of the life that's growing in, inside of them. And oftentimes these, these pregnancy resource clinics, I, I can't sing their, their tunes, their praise high enough. Uh, they're truly on the front lines here. Uh, they have initiatives. Uh, to walk that mother through all the developmental stages. Uh, many of them have counseling programs for those fathers, trying to make sure that they stay engaged and stay involved in the life of this child. And, and hopefully maybe even we get to a point, if it makes sense, where they, they actually get married. Um, so they, it, it's just incredible what they do. And they need churches calling them up too uh, to support them. And uh, I, I think that's actually the network that needs to be created um, or that needs to be bolstered, I should say, in the in the wake of this decision, because a number of churches are already doing this. We need all uh, forty seven thousand of our churches uh, to get engaged on this. And uh, a thing we hear a lot, <clears throat> a thing we hear a lot is, you know, that you can't do everything, but you can yep. do something. And and this is a great example of that. You you might be eighty or eighty five, and and this isn't the time maybe to take in a. Uh, an adoptive placement of a newborn, uh, but this might be a time where you can offer some respite care or or donating and, and things. There's so many different ways. Uh, some simple things that I've done is is uh, kind of two things. One is kind of for my pastor heart. One is this kind of uh, culture of life, uh, pro-life side is anytime I pass, pass a church, I usually stop in whether I know the guy or not and just see if I can pray with him at the pastor's there and just see how he's doing. Uh, conversely, if you ever pass a uh, one of these crisis pregnancy clinics, go in. Uh, I guarantee you will probably meet some of the most joyful people on the planet. Uh, because th these people, yes, they have some bad days when maybe a, uh, a mama decides that she's going to go a different route. But many days they get to celebrate with her and then walk with her. And there's so much joy that comes in that. And, and when I go in there, I always leave usually more joyful than when I went in. And because I get to hear some of the stories and, and pray with them, see if there's any needs, if they're in your own backyard, see if there's any needs you can meet, whether it's diapers or bottles or whatever it might be. And then use your church and, and try and get involved with the church side of things. And, and y'all raise those, those needs. Give us just, I'm going to throw a random number out there. Just give us four other ways uh, beyond praying and going in and helping crisis pregnancy centers and, and maybe looking at some foster care side of either respite or helping or whatever there. Just give us four other ways that Christians can have a culture of life uh, and, and meet some of these needs. Well, I think it starts at the local church. Um, so pastor uh, continually return 
to um, themes about you know the Imago Day and the implications that it has on how we are to reflect God's glory to this world and and continually uh, advocate. You know, I, we do so good talking about our, our neighbors that sometimes are, um, are 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 around us, but we we kind of they're hidden from us. And so, Pastor, go ahead from the stage and continually set the tone for a culture of life that is based uh, out of scripture. Um, volunteering uh, at those, those local pregnancy resource centers uh, is incredibly helpful, uh, particularly if you can get your small group engaged, uh, adopt a local uh, pregnancy resource center. Th- those can be incredibly helpful because, you know, you were talking about respite, even if it's just going in, uh, you know, uh, once a month and giving somebody an hour off uh, at the front desk. Uh, you know, they, they've got specially trained individuals typically who will like answer the phones and whatnot, but even if it's just somebody to be there so that uh, a staff member can go and just take a lunch with it, they, you know, can have some time away. Uh, otherwise, uh, there are uh, a number of pro-life organizations out there uh, that are doing incredible work on this, uh, whether it is uh, supplying uh, uh, material for these pro-life clinics or advancing policies. Uh, there's a number of folks kind of on the legal pro-life side. We, one of our partners is Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, they're probably some of the mo- foremost advocates uh, for uh, promoting life. Um, and so I encourage you to check them out at adf.org. Uh, and then a fourth one, gosh, I feel like we've kind of run the, run the gamut here. Um, well, I would say this, uh, don't be afraid. I think a lot of times we think, uh, particularly as, as this issue, it, again, if it, if it does follow along the outlines of, of what this opinion uh, suggests, this issue is going to come to a more local level. And I, I, I think that we forget that a lot of times our pews are actually filled with state leaders. Um, don't be afraid to talk to a state leader. Uh, about this issue and about you know just what uh, human dignity means and and the the biblical uh, basis uh, for that concept and and uh, particularly and now look I, talking with a legislator in, in Tennessee or Texas uh, uh, that's going to be a, in a sense a relatively easy conversation because we live in in states that are uh, just based on policy a little bit more pro life oriented but if you live in California. If you live in Illinois, if you live in New Hampshire, uh, those conversations, uh, they're going to be more difficult, more challenging. Um, and I would encourage uh, any listeners who are in those states, take a more long range view, uh, because this is going to take considerable work to, to change uh, the, the culture that are in some of those states. Uh, but it, just be faithful. Uh, and 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 uh, walk alongside these state legislators and let them hear your heart. And uh, given that I, I used to work uh, at the at the state level, I, I one of the rules that we always had was if a state legislator is is talked to uh, by about seven people, it's kind of the rule of seven. Uh, they often felt like, wow, there's a real groundswell of support out there for this particular issue, and it it often made. Uh, a particular uh, effect on on you know their view on legislation, and so those personal connections. Now, hear hear me say this: I'm not saying everybody needs to go out there and become a lobbyist. No, it's not what I'm saying. Befriend these people 
uh, elected officials are your neighbor. Uh, so, so show them the kindness that Jesus would. Um, but particularly as it relates to this issue, because I think it is so, uh, it's so close to the heart of so many Southern Baptists. Um, show them your heart and, and let them know why you feel this way. But, but again, it's in many uh, instances, it's, it's going to be a longer walk um, and an uphill climb. But uh, if anything, you should take heart, take cheer from this decision. Again, if it remains as is, uh, it shows you that you can make progress having conversations like that one-on-one. Awesome. The uh, the final thing I would uh, I would share is really your words at the uh, conclusion of this, and uh, that you are inviting uh, Christians to join you in this this prayer, and uh, and you have kind of four prayer notes. That is that we will. Praise God for this moment that many of us have dedicated years or even a lifetime to see, uh, that we will be lamenting the loss of so many children who had their lives destroyed over the last 50 years and mothers who have been preyed upon by the abortion industry, that we will be praying for each justice in their safety for this court majority to hold firm for life and for all of them collectively to have the fortitude to withstand the torrent of criticism that is likely coming their way. And, and perhaps with that also, as you shared what is going on in, in the other branches of government, that we want that to, to hold off, that the filibuster will stand strong, that kind of deal. And then finally, fourth, that we will ask God to raise up the next generation of pro-life leaders who will serve in their communities, like you just said, and in their churches to meet the needs of the vulnerable in a Christ-like manner, building a culture of life where they live. And I think all of our listeners will say amen to that and join you in that prayer. And uh, and so I think I can confidently say I will see you in Anaheim because I think I have to be there. And I think you have to be there. And so we will see you there. And, it's, a pr- uh, it's a privilege to be there. It's a it privilege is. to be there. Yeah, it is. I just want to know, uh, so if, if you come to Anaheim, uh, which you will be there, uh, are you going to be wearing the nose ring? The nose ring is not coming with me. Oh, okay. That, that oh, nose okay. ring painfully right. was removed. I will be, however, wearing my Whataburger boots. I can promise okay. you that. I will be an in and out. So my biggest, be, beyond picking preachers and fundraising and all that kind of stuff, my biggest goal was to be able to get Whataburger as one of our sponsors for the podcast or for the uh, pastor's conference. And it failed miserably. It was too political uh, for them. But, uh, but I still love them. And I'm still going to wear the Whataburger boots and give them some love anyway. So, so I look forward to seeing you there. And, uh, and until next time, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel we declare. And Brent, we are praying for you. I encourage our listeners to uh, pray for you as well and the ERLC team. I know the past few months have been interesting and uh, a new kind of world for y'all. And then the last week has been crazy. And uh, we're grateful for the work you're doing, praying for you, and, uh, and we'll continue to share what God is doing in and through y'all's work there, and of course, with the Psalm 139 project. So thanks for coming on, Brent. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you, brother. What's wrong with you people? <laughs>